Thank you very much, Reverend Herring, and it is an honor and a pleasure to be here. And I want to thank all of you for giving up the chance to watch either the New England Patriots win their sixth Super Bowl or the Los Angeles Rams win their first. I cannot guarantee that my talk will be more exciting than the Super Bowl, but I can guarantee that it will not be quite as long. By the way, you were all told that after this talk there will be an examination, right? I mean, you all got that. And we, okay, just want to take that out. Today, the Reverend Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech is more widely quoted and cited than is his letter from a Birmingham jail. There are reasons for this. His I Have a Dream speech was recorded on film. It can be replayed over and over. More importantly, it looks toward a future of peace and brotherhood when the promise of American exceptionalism and non-discrimination will be realized. In fact, just a few years ago, that goal seemed within reach. But in today's America, it may be worthwhile to look back to his letter from a Birmingham jail to understand why the struggle for justice must be continued and joined in by all of us. Therefore, I propose that we look at his letter from a Birmingham jail and read it in, in which the Reverend King laid before all Christians the moral imperative to bring attention to, challenge, and eventually change unjust laws and the status quo they uphold. But before we begin, two preliminary notes. First, I have asked that we be distributed copies of Reverend King's letter and also copies of the public statement directed to Martin Luther King Jr. by eight Alabama clergymen to which his letter was the reply. Now, I think I've made enough copies, but if not, we can uh, make some more. The clergyman's statement was published on Good Friday, 1963. That was April 12th. We'll come back to that date again later. And Dr. King's letter was dated April 16, 1963. The version you received is dated August 1963, as that is when his letter was copyrighted. This is the full version of Reverend King's letter. It may be longer than previous abridged versions you might be familiar with. That is because those abridged versions omit much of Reverend King's comments about Christianity, the organized church, and the role of faith and religion in combating racism, prejudice, and discrimination. In doing so, they obscure the deep religious faith that animated the Reverend King and the fact that this letter was written by a clergyman responding to other clergymen and the arguments he was making were founded on his faith in Christ and his belief that he was called by his faith to lead public demonstrations against segregation laws. Second, I will refer to Martin Luther King Jr. throughout as, Re as Reverend King, not the more usual appellation used today of Dr. King. I do so not to denigrate his Ph.D. degree, which he earned from Boston University, 
but to emphasize his calling as an ordained minister of Christ. It was as a minister of Christ that he led the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that he was in Birmingham, Alabama, that he was arrested for demonstrating without a permit, and that he wrote the letter. We celebrate the birth of heroes and we mourn their deaths. For heroes who also are martyrs, we celebrate their births as a beginning and we honor their deaths as a fulfillment of their life's work in Christ. The Reverend Dr. King was martyred 51 years ago this coming April at the age of 39 for his work as a devout Christian who used the teachings and inspiration of his faith to bring political, social, and economic equality and justice first to African Americans and then to all Americans. The essayist and New York Times columnist Russell Baker called Reverend King, quote, the one indisputably great American of the 20th century's second half. And the historian Taylor Branch, in his magisterial three-volume biography of Reverend King, referred to America in the years from 1954, when Dr. King began his ministry, to 1968, when he was assassinated in Memphis as, quote, America in the King years. This was in recognition of Reverend King's transformative work to mobilize public opinion and political action against the evils of discrimination and racial segregation in America. A little bit of history. It is difficult for people who did not live through that time 50 years ago to realize just how polarized America was over race. Today, the Reverend King is a revered figure in the American pantheon of heroes and martyrs. He is the only non-president American honored with a national holiday in his name in the United States. There is almost universal appreciation of his calls for brotherhood, love, and understanding. But in the midst of the 1960s, he was viewed as a wild radical, even by some of his allies, and he was reviled as an outside agitator, a communist sympathizer, and worse, by his many enemies. What many young people today do not realize is that the, quote, civil rights movement, also called the civil rights struggle, close quote, was in reality a second civil war in America. People died in this war. For example, in 1963 alone, there was in April the demonstrations in Alabama that led to the Reverend King's arrest in Birmingham. In June, the assassination of NAACP Field Secretary Medgar Evers in Jackson, Mississippi by the Ku Klux Klan. In August, the march on Washington, D.C. for jobs and freedom, where the Reverend King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech to the nation. And in September of 1963, the murder of four little girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair, in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. The following year, 1964, saw the murders by the Ku Klux Klan, aided and abetted by local police, of three Freedom Summer civil rights volunteers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, in rural Mississippi. In 1965, an African-American, Mr. Jimmy Lee Jackson, and a white Unitarian minister from Boston, Massachusetts, the Reverend James Reeh, 
were murdered in Selma, Alabama, in connection with the civil rights demonstrations there that led to the famous march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And of course, there was Reverend King's own tragic assassination in Memphis, Tennessee in April 1968. It was in the cauldron uh, it was in the context of this cauldron of violence and hate that Reverend King and other members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, which Reverend King headed, came to Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 to assist local civil rights leaders in their protest against state and local laws and ordinances that enforced racial segregation. Prior to the arrival of Dr. King in the SCLC in January of 1963, a group of white clergymen in Alabama issued an, quote, appeal for law and order, close quote, to avoid protest and violence against racial discrimination in Birmingham. Nonetheless, Dr. King and the SCLC came to Birmingham at the invitation of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. On April 3, 1963, they began a campaign of civil rights demonstrations and boycotts with coordinated marches and sit-ins against racism and racial segregation in Birmingham. On April 10, Alabama Circuit Judge W.A. Jenkins issued a blanket injunction against, quote, parading, demonstrating, boycotting, trespassing, and picketing, close quote. Leaders of the protest campaign announced that they would disobey the ruling. This is what is called civil disobedience. When you openly and publicly disobey a law you believe to be unjust in order to bring attention to the law with the goal of changing it. On Good Friday, April 12th, King was roughly arrested with fellow SCLC activists, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy and local civil rights leader Fred Shuttlesworth and other marchers while many hundreds of African American residents looked on. That same day, April 12th, an open letter from the eight white Alabama clergymen who had written the earlier letter calling for law and order in January addressed an open letter to Dr. King, which was published in the local newspapers. It was addressed to Dr. King, but really it was intended for the local African-American community. It was published under the heading, A Call for Unity. It is worth noting that no black clergy signed the statement. Two of the clergymen were Episcopal bishops, the Right Reverend C.C.J. Carpenter, the Episcopal Bishop of Alabama, and the Right Reverend George M. Murray, then the Bishop Coadjutor of the Episcopal Diocese of Alabama. Let's pause here for a moment. It is important to note that the authors of this letter were not arguing in support of segregation or discrimination. In fact, one of the signers, the Roman Catholic Bishop Joseph Durek, would go on to become a noted civil rights advocate in his own right. It might, sort of the most generous thing to say about the letter is that the authors sincerely believed in, in what they were calling for but were on the wrong side of history at that time. They were what was called at the time moderates or gradualists. They agreed to a certain extent with some, perhaps even most, of the goals of the civil rights movement, but they disagreed strongly with the tactics of civil disobedience and mass de demonstrations. For them, such tactics were inimical to civic order. In fact, by definition, such tactics were examples of civic disorder. 
And because they feared the violence that disorder could bring, they placed ordered civic discourse above all other civic virtues, even above immediate social justice. Thus, as they write in their statement, they think the demonstration in Birmingham are, quote, unwise and untimely, close quote. That statement refers to the demonstrations as, quote, technically peaceful, but inciting violence. They voiced their opposition to the, quote, outsiders, meaning the Reverend King and the SCLC, who they write are leading the demonstrations. While they, quote, recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow to being realized, they call for, quote, honest and open negotiations of racial issues in our area with the local authorities as the proper means to address these issues instead of public demonstrations. What they forgot to realize is that negotiations had been going on since January when the SCLC first arrived, and it was the failure of those negotiations to bring about any meaningful change and the fear by the SCLC and the local groups in Birmingham that the authorities were not negotiating in good faith, which then led to the mass demonstrations. The statement then goes on to applaud, quote, these days of new hope in Birmingham, close quote. You may wonder what they meant by this. They were referring to the recent mayoral election in Birmingham in which the notorious sheriff, of whom I suspect you all have heard, T. Eugene Bull Connor, had been defeated. The moderate white community hoped and expected that a new city leadership would be more amenable to change than had the previous administration. In fact, in 1962, the year before, Connor had run for governor of Alabama, and he lost to George Wallace. The statement then commends, quote, the community as a whole and the local news media and law enforcement officials in particular on the calm manner in which these demonstrations have been handled, close quote. Of course, Bull Connor had not yet unleashed his fire hoses and police dogs on the demonstrators. The clergymen conclude with the not unreasonable statement that, quote, when rights are constantly denied, excuse me, when rights are consistently denied, a cause should be pressed in the courts and in negotiations among local leaders and not in the streets. The great black abolitionist Frederick Douglass would have responded to this with his pithy statement, those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing the ground. The statement by the uh, clergyman is not necessarily unreasonable, but is it accurate? As a lawyer, I certainly agree that people should seek redress in the civil courts for civil wrongs. But what if the courts uphold and enforce laws that are discriminatory and unjust, and local leaders will not negotiate in good faith unless they are encouraged to do so by the pressure of public opinion? Under such circumstances, marches in the street become a necessary tactic to both mobilize public opinion and demonstrate what results it demands. The statement from the clergy indicates that what they feared most was not injustice, it was unrest, which could lead to violence. And because of that, what they wanted most was not civil rights, it was civic order. Unfortunately, the slower the march toward justice, 
the longer the entrenched systems of injustice and the unequal privilege that injustice bestows would remain in place. The Reverend King wrote his letter from his Birmingham City jail cell in response to this public statement. He believed it was critical to answer the charges that the demonstrations in Birmingham were brought on by outsiders, that they were not necessary, that they should be abandoned in favor of a slower, more orderly process in accord with local laws. Begun in the margins of the newspaper in which the statement appeared while he was in jail, the letter was continued on scraps of writing paper supplied by a friendly black trustee in the jail and concluded on a writing pad his attorneys were eventually permitted to leave with him. Reverend King gave bits and pieces of the letter to his lawyers to take back to movement headquarters where the Reverend Wyatt T. Walker and his secretary, Willie Pearl McKay, began compiling and editing it into its final coherent whole. Reverend King's letter is an elegant and reasoned defense of the goals and tactics of mass demonstrations and civil disobedience in service to social justice and civil rights. It also is permeated with a heartfelt disappointment that religious leaders he had hoped would be his allies have become, if not his enemies, then his critics. The letter responds to this disappointment and frustration over such criticism. In his opening, the Reverend King explains in a very generous tone why he has taken the time to respond to this statement when he rarely responded to the many criticisms he received. He writes, quote, Since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. Close quote. He then responds to their criticism of, quote, outsiders coming in to Birmingham by first explaining that he and his SCLC colleagues were invited to come by their local affiliate, the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. He then goes on to note, quote, beyond this, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. He then ties the civil rights struggle to the early Christians who challenged the status quo in Roman law in the name of their faith. King notes that just as the Apostle Paul carried the gospel of Christ throughout the Greco-Roman world, quote, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown, close quote. He follows this with one of his most famous oft-quoted statements, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied to a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. After this gracious opening, Reverend King then gets specific and criticizes the authors of the statement for deploring the demonstrations without also deploring the conditions that led to the demonstrations. He writes, Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of police brutality is known in every section of this country. Its unjust treatment of Negroes in the courts is a notorious reality. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in this nation. Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the political leaders consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiations. 
King then directly responds to the request that he negotiate again with city leaders by noting that he and his colleagues engaged in direct action only after negotiations with the city leaders and businessmen failed to achieve any results. He notes that the goal of nonviolent direct action through boycotts, marches, demonstrations, and sit-ins is, quote, to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. King also responded to their criticism that the demonstrations were untimely, writing in pained tones in the last paragraph on page two, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. I am reminded here of Frederick Douglass's other great statement, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Dr. King goes on to say, frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence, and we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward the gaining of a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. King then goes on in that paragraph to explain in brilliant, harrowing, and painful detail the evils of racial discrimination. I'd like to read his words at length. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children, and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky, and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking an agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John and when your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting and degenerating sense of nobodiness, 
Then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they experience the bleakness of corroding despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. This is as precise a dissection of the practice of racism in mid-20th century America and its effects on its victims, as you are likely to read. Of course, much has changed since 1963. But in our era of Black Lives Matter, urban poverty, educational inequality, and resegregation in many cities and towns, we need to ask ourselves whether any of these aspects of racism still remain. Now turn to page three in Reverend King's discussion of just and unjust laws. After his specific and granular description of racism and discrimination in America, King then steps back, and in this section of the letter, he reaches beyond the African-American experience to to link the struggle in America to other struggles for human rights at different times around the world. As a lawyer and law professor, I find this part of the letter fascinating, instructive, and, to be candid, a little unsettling. Reverend King admits that since he urged Americans to obey the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education, which outlawed segregation in public schools, it may seem paradoxical and contradictory for him and his colleagues to break other laws. He responds to this paradox as follows, quote, The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and unjust laws. And he quotes approvingly St. Augustine's statement that, An unjust law is no law at all. What, then, is an unjust law? After quoting from St. Thomas Aquinas, Reverend King responds in two ways. First, he notes, any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. And therefore, quote, all segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. I take his phrase, human personality, to mean the dignity of each person to be himself or herself and to not be discriminated against because of who they are. He notes that such a law, quote, gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority, close quote. He then quotes the great Jewish philosopher Martin Buber and the great Lutheran existential theologian Paul Tillich in support of his thesis and concludes, quote, so I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court because it is morally right, and I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances because they are morally wrong. The second point he makes is this, Quote, an unjust law is a code inflicted by the majority upon a minority that is not binding on itself. This is difference made legal. On the other hand, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that it is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. Close quote. He then notes that laws which are neutral on their face such as the ordinance under which he was arrested for parading without a permit, can be unjust in their application, 
when the law is used to preserve segregation and deny citizens their First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and peaceful protest. The U.S. Supreme Court would agree that laws which are neutral on their face can be unconstitutional if they have a disparate impact on some members of our society to deny them their constitutionally protected rights. Then, in, his, in perhaps his most telling attack on unjust law, laws, King writes the following. We can never forget that in Germany, excuse me, we can never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and, com and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. But I am sure that if I had lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers, even though it was illegal. If I lived in a communist country today where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I believe I would openly advocate disobeying those anti-religious laws. Thus, the struggle for racial equality in America is linked to other struggles for justice everywhere, according to the Reverend King. Then, again linking his protests to the church as he does throughout the letter, King goes on to argue that civil disobedience is as old as the Bible itself. He writes that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because of their adherence to a higher moral law. And the early Christians were willing to face death and dismemberment rather than submit to the unjust laws of the Roman Empire. These are powerful arguments persuasively made. Note that they are made in defense of civil disobedience, not to encourage the furtive and criminal violation of the laws. A person engaging in civil disobedience does so publicly and openly in the full expectation that they will be arrested and charged with an offense and they may serve time in jail or prison. But they do so in order to bring public attention to the law so that others may see its injustice. They are appealing to the court of public opinion as much to a court of law. If the public disagrees with them, their protest will die a warning, and the laws will not be changed. But if their moral conscience is consistent with the views of others in their society, the laws will be changed. This is what happened in the United States. Martin Luther King and others hammered out their challenges to segregation and discrimination on the anvil of public notice and outrage. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and other legislative accomplishments and judicial decisions are memorials to the success of the movement they led. But before there can be successful change, we must have the moral courage to attempt such change. Victory is never guaranteed. We must be willing to risk defeat in pursuit of social justice. It is at this point that the closing part of his letter is addressed. Reverend King expressed his disappointment with the authors of the statement, whom he refers to as my Christian and Jewish brothers, and with the white church establishment in general for not displaying this moral courage. There is a sadness tinged with anger here. He writes, quote, I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. 
but I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother, close quote. He then writes, quote, there was a time when the early church was very powerful. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. For us today, American Christians in the 21st century, Reverend King's challenge still resonates. For example, we see those who would seek to justify their discrimination against members of the LGBTQ community on religious grounds. We have a Supreme Court that has gutted the Voting Rights Act despite continuing voter suppression efforts in various states to disenfranchise minority communities. And we saw at the highest level of our national government a refusal to condemn violent racists and anti-Semites in Charlottesville, Virginia. Reverend King's letter from a Birmingham jail reminds us that each of us, no matter how young or how old we are, no matter our race or our gender or any other aspect by which we define ourselves or are defined by others, will be faced with moral choices in our lives. As Christians, we must ask ourselves, how should we respond? Will we stand in the line of fire with Martin Luther King Jr. and our Christian brothers and sisters who have gone before us? Will we be sustained by our deep faith in Christ through an abiding love of our fellow men and women and with a sacrificial spirit of hope and joy? Or will we stand aside and say to those in need, wait? Reverend King's letter is a clarion call for justice. Let us heed that call and march with his spirit for social, political, and economic justice for all in our own day and time. Thank you. Okay, folks, so we have a time of uh, uh, inquiries of Dr. Link on his presentation, and um, we are recording this for our brothers and sisters who are unable to attend with us today. Um, so I'm going to bring the microphone around to you if you have a particular question that you would like to ask. Oh, I, I'm Bill Brotherton. I'm a retired Superior Court judge. Uh, my understanding is you teach legal ethics at the uh, um, in the issue of civil disobedience, um, in the issue of disobeying an unjust law. 
Do you ever get into that with your students? I mean, and talk about that in the area of of uh, how it relates to legal ethics and being an attorney. I do. I mean, that there are a couple of ways uh, you can address that. I mean, uh, when I was in practice many years ago in Washington D.C. Um, on a pro bono basis, that means as a as a uh, doing it for free, I represented. Uh, people who protested in front of the South African embassy uh, protesting against apartheid. And so I tell my students that um, uh, they may, in fact, be called upon to represent people in those contexts. Um, and that, that is simply a form of legal representation. The, the, the tougher issue, and I think the issue you're addressing that is, um, should a lawyer engage in civil disobedience? Um, lawyers are officers of the court. And um, our job is to uh, represent uh, the justice system and represent people and provide access to justice uh, for others. I once uh, had the occasion, uh, I led a group of students, uh, a group of undergraduate students actually, to meet with um, uh, Ruth McGregor when she was a chief justice here in Arizona. And the issue we discussed with her, and I prepped the students to make sure they were able to engage her, uh, was what happens if a judge disagrees with a, uh, a law they have to uh, uh, uphold? In, in the context in which I'm speaking, a good example of this was in the uh, 19th century when the um, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act. And the Fugitive Slave Act required um, uh, people in, in the North and judges in the North to empower slave catchers from the South when they captured a slave in a free state, they could go to court, get a writ to have that slave uh, captured and brought back to slavery. Well, many judges in the North were themselves abolitionists and themselves anti-slavery advocates, and that caused huge consternation and difficulty. And um, uh, Judge McGregor said that if, if a judge... As a judge, you cannot um, change the law. The law has been enacted in, in whatever the appropriate manner is. The only thing that you can do is don't enforce the law, which means step down. And if, and if you feel so conflicted, then you should step down if you feel you can't enforce the law. And so I say to my students, as a lawyer, um, you have to advise your clients on what the law is, uh, uh, Arizona Ethics Rule um, 1.2D, uh, you have to advise your clients on what the law is, but you cannot counsel your clients to break the law, and you need to tell them what the uh, consequences are. Uh, if you break the law as a lawyer, you may be subject to discipline. You can be subject to discipline. And so what this says to me is when you make moral choices, they are not without a cost. So, you know, you, you, we've all heard the expression, virtue is its own reward. And I say to my students, what that means is, if you do the right thing, don't expect you'll get applause and pats on the back and, you know, TV contracts and on the news. No, you may, the only reward you may get is that you've done the right thing. But you might be subject to discipline if you, do, if you consciously break the law, and you can't counsel others to break the law, what you can do is advise them that this is the law, and if you demonstrate, you're likely to be arrested. Um, uh, and, and then I can represent you uh, if, if you are. So, I mean, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a difficult question for lawyers, but it's one that lawyers have to confront, and we need to be prepared, and judges, and we need to be prepared to confront them. 
Thank you. My name is Kevin Robinson, but Miles, you know that. Um, the question I have, um, and it's something I really didn't understand or I didn't know before what prompted the letter, the eight clergymen, the eight Alabama clergymen, do you know if they ever changed their position after the letter or what became of their positions they started off with? That's a great question. Um, all of the, of, of the clergymen who had families, if you, if you go to their Wikipedia pages, and they all now have a Wikipedia site, their children or other family members go to great length to say they were not racist. They were not, you know, don't think. That this, they're signing the statement in January and then this letter in April in a sense, define them. That, that, that's why they have Wikipedia entries, because of this letter, even though they did other things as well. Um, the Roman Catholic priest became very active in the civil rights movement. The others did not. Um, I, my, my own sense is none of the others were, were, um, uh, were, were, were active racists, but um, who was it who said... Um, I think it was Martin Luther King, the only thing, or it might have been another great American, but the only thing that is needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And, and it, it's not clear, well, it is clear that they were not um, uh, actively pushing for um, uh, civil rights and, uh, and social justice in the milieu and environment in which they lived. It's also clear they were not actively opposing it. Their concern was, um, let's try to make the transition as smooth and as painless as possible. And, and unfortunately, uh, history tells us uh, social transformations as fundamental as changing a, a, a racist laws and moving to desegregate a community, it's very hard to make those transitions painless because there's so many people with a vested interest in things staying the way they are and then there's so many people with a vested interest in things changing as soon as possible. And so we saw that played out in America uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and really, an argument can be made in some ways where we're still seeing the residue of that being played out in America today. So um, they went on. They, they all continued in their, uh, as, as religious leaders of their faith, um, each of them had to come to terms with the fact that in that letter they were identified with, his, with, a, with a side of history that was um, defeated, and, and thankfully, and that, and that they were perceived to be supporting a system of segregation, which I don't think was, was correct. That, that what they were trying to do was something different, but they did it in, a, in an unfortunate way. Um, and it is interesting, their, their families and their, and their descendants are, are very consciously want the world want us to know they were not racist. They were just trying to um, prevent violence. Thank you. My question is uh, regarding marching as an effective tactic, marches in the 21st century. Uh, this Martin Luther King holiday, I was honored to hold the torch. And as I looked back on the picture um, of me in this ceremonial march, at a time like this, I'm curious what your thoughts are on how effective a ceremonial march is. Does it advance King's goal of um, racial equality? Um, or does it do more harm when marches can be more effective for, for a cause? 
That's a, that's a good question, and I, I'll start by saying I don't have a definitive answer. Um, my, my sense is marches serve a purpose. Sort of a little footnote here, when we look back at the 1960s, we think of the civil rights movement as everybody shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, in, in, the, in the movement marching together. Well, that, that wasn't the case. And so uh, the great lawyer, later Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, who headed the NAACP uh, Legal Defense Fund, didn't think much of civil disobedience. And, 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 and he would say, um, how many school systems have they desegregated? Well, of course, that was the legal work. Um, and, and so, but on the other hand, what King and the SCLC did in their public demonstrations was bring in the force of national public attention onto a system and, and sort of created the impetus for change. I mean, Lyndon Johnson... Uh, would never have, uh, well, it would have been harder for Lyndon Johnson to, to have um, gotten the Civil Rights Act passed, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 passed without the work of uh, Martin Luther King. And they both understood, even though they disagreed on, on many things, and they came to disagree greatly over the Vietnam War, but they both understood that they had a role to play in advancing social justice. Today, I think one of the things marches do is let people know um, there are people who think enough about this issue that they're willing to take time out of their lives to put their body on the line and, and march for something. Um, and, and I think that's, that's important. And, and you know, you know we, we see in Washington, D.C., uh, dueling marches, uh, particularly over abortion rights. Uh, and we see, you know, uh, right to life versus a woman's uh, uh, reproductive rights. And, and we see, um, and, and I think they do serve a purpose. They, they send a message that people are committed uh, to this issue and that they're willing to be seen, they're, they're, they're willing to be heard, they're willing to put their lives on the line. So I, I think they still have a role. Now, you know, there, there are other roles that need to be played. Legislators need to do the right thing. Uh, judges need to do the right thing. Lawyer, I mean, there are, we as citizens, when we vote, we need to do the right thing. I mean, there, there's a role for all of us, but I think marches have, their, have a role as well. This is kind of lengthy, so answer however you want. We live in an age when, with a fierce debate about refugees and immigrants, and some enter in accordance with the law, and some do not. And my father's family came from Cuba in 1959, and so I'm from a family that has kind of been through this. And I'm curious how Dr. King's letter could be helpful to congregations as we ponder how to explore further about this pressing issue in our day. And where in the letter might you invite us to begin to uh, unpack this in a way that we can help delve further into this seemingly unsolvable situation in our society for us to grow into creating a spirit of what Dr. King always termed the beloved community? That, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, yes, a little lengthy, but, 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 but a great question. Um, I, I think that part of the letter where he talks about just and unjust laws is really relevant here. Um, you know, in, in, in a, in a, in a, if this were, you know, if, in the words of Dr. Seuss, if I ran the circus or if I ran the zoo, I would, you know, everybody would come who was, wanted to come into the country would come through legally, you know, 
designated entry ports and fill out the forms and do everything uh, the appropriate way. Um, many people, for many different reasons, um, some for very urgent uh, life and death reasons, can't do that. And so I think what we as a society need to do is adjust our immigration laws to the reality of, of, of refugees and the reality of people who need uh, a place to come. Um, interestingly enough, they did that to some extent in, in, in some parts of Europe. In a sense, we've gone the other way. We, we've made it harder for people to come. I think uh, last year, in 2018, the United States, um, the INS or, or its, its successor agency admitted um, the number of refugees admitted was like the lowest in like 50 years or something, something like that. I think King would say that is not an appropriate response to an urgent need. And in fact, when, um, when the administration went through successive attempts to draft an order to keep people out, uh, the Supreme Court, the current Supreme Court, struck down uh, the first order and I think the second on the grounds that they, they, they were unconstitutional. So we, we need to address an urgent issue. Uh, there are lawful ways that can be done. I mean, the immigration laws can be amended. Um, and as a society and as a, as a political establishment, uh, Congress has failed to do this, and, and the administration has failed to do it. And King would say that's one of their most urgent responsibilities because this is an urgent social need. Um, for people who are desperate to get across the border, um, King would say we need to recognize most urgently their desperation as opposed to recognizing most urgently that they violated the law getting here, and we need to find some way to address the desperation that is appropriate and legal. Thank you. Really enjoyed your presentation, sir. Now, you spoke of resegregation in urban communities, resegregation in public schools, and income equality. What are your thoughts about this resegregation and the role that court rulings on all levels, all levels are playing in this process of resegregation and greater income equality? Well, um, to be candid, I don't, I don't have before me uh, in my mind what court rulings you might be referring to, but we do have um, a... To, to the victor goes the spoils. And um, whoever wins uh, the presidency of the United States, uh, they have the right to uh, appoint judges uh, to the courts. And it is likely, it is more likely than not, they will appoint judges who, whose judicial philosophies are consistent with their political philosophies. And that is certainly uh, what has happened over the past uh, two years. Um, and at state and local courts, uh, at, at the Supreme Court and appellate court levels uh, where, where judicial policy is made, we, we've seen, um, you know, a more conservative uh, uh, judicial process. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States, has said that there are no Democratic judges, federal judges, or Republican federal judges. They're just judges, and they're trying to do the best they can to enforce um, the law. One of the interesting things about the judicial system, 
the judicial system is inherently, I mean, a conservative element in a political society. In the 1960s, in a sense, with the Earl Warren Supreme Court, we were spoiled. And uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, the great African-American lawyer and uh, an academic at Howard University in Washington, D.C., spoke of lawyers as social engineers for justice. And and Thurgood Marshall epitomized that as using the law to to, to, to achieve justice. And in a sense, those of us who grew up during that time viewed the law in that way. It was an instrument for social justice. The older sort of 19th century version, which has now come back with a, with, a, with a vengeance today, is no, the law is a tool of stability, and it's a tool of order, and it, 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 it's, a tool, it's, it's a way to systematize how disputes are settled, and it's not a vehicle that gets ahead of the legislature in terms of social change. And so we're seeing that played out in the courts today. We're seeing that... Uh, uh, dispute, if you will, played out in the courts today. And frankly, I think it's fair to say most judges, or not most, I don't, I don't have the, the statistics for that, but certainly many judges are imbued with a sense that the courts are instruments of order as opposed to instruments of justice. And so, um, and they look to the legislature, they look to the executive to change the laws which they then are called upon to interpret. And, and, and I, I, you know, that is a debate which is ongoing in both the legal community, the political community, and as, and as citizens. That's a debate you participate in when you vote. And um, uh, one of the things progressives n- have not understood as well as conservatives is how important your vote is for who sits on the courts, who sits on the bench. It is absolutely urgent, and you need to think about that uh, when you cast your vote. So, you're right. I think the, the, the courts are sort of more, quote, conservative today, and they're not, they are not the instruments for, for change they were in the 1960s and, and 70s, and that's, that's certainly true. You reference uh, today's courts and Trump and his appointees, but I think after... King's assassination and the election of Nixon, okay, and then uh, we had Carter for a few years and Neil Reagan. Did that swing from the thoughts of the courts in the 1960s, what Houston thought as social engineers, did that change? Are you, are you saying that change is just occurring under Trump, or did that change occur earlier in the 70s and 80s also? That change began earlier. I think it began under President Reagan. I think, I think, um, uh, and 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 I and I think there's been a concerted um, effort to to change. One of the most. Let me just sort of. You didn't ask this, but let me just make a, make this a point. One of the most urgent issues in in sort of jurisprudence today. In, in looking at the composition of the Supreme Court and of other courts, and this goes to your point, is you have some federal judges who believe Brown v. Board of Education was wrongly decided. If, if that decision ever gets overturned, that, 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 is, that decision was probably the greatest decision of the 20th century in America. 
And what it said was under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, uh, segregation and discrimination in schools was inappropriate and, and had to be changed, was unconstitutional, had to be changed. When that case was argued in the Supreme Court, the people who were arguing for um, uh, the city of Tope- the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, and South Carolina, and the other uh, cases that were consolidated, their argument was this is a state's issue. And so it shouldn't be decided under the U.S. Constitution. It should be remanded. The case should be remanded to each state, and each state should decide for itself under its own constitution whether segregation uh, or separate but equal, as they called it, uh, should be uh, continued or should be discontinued. And the Supreme Court said no. Under the federal equal protection clause of the federal constitution, this is unconstitutional. Can you imagine the um, response in this country if Brown v. Board of Education is overturned? And I have to tell you, there are some judges and some judicial nominees who have openly discussed their view that it was wrongly decided. And if you ever get a majority of the Supreme Court that feels that case is wrongly decided, um, we are in trouble. Um, we all know that Roe v. Wade is, is um, on life support. Um, and, and we don't know how that will turn out uh, if, if the Supreme Court gets the appropriate case. Um, so many things that we thought were settled in the law. We woke up on November 9th, 2016, and and all the time since then to realize these things were not settled. And that's why Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail is so important. I love the soaring tones of his I Have a Dream speech. I'm sure we all do. And we all would love to live in that world. We'd all love to share that dream. But before we get there, we've got to gird up our loins and fight. And, um, and that's what... Um, the letter from a Birmingham jail is all about. Um, the fight for social justice doesn't end. I, I think a lot of us, and you know, I can include myself in this, we thought, well, the battle is over. And I know for many young people today, they thought, oh my goodness, I wish I could have lived in the 1960s or the 1970s and I'd be out there on the firing line. Well, these young people have firing lines of their own right now today. Black lives matter. Um, all lives matter. Um, income inequality. Um, the greatest income inequality in the United States today since the Gilded Age in the 1890s. Um, there are urgent issues, and, and Martin Luther, remember, his trajectory, he's identified with the Civil Rights Movement for African Americans, but remember, the March on Washington was a march for jobs and freedom. It was a march for economic equality. And then, of course, when he came out and criticized the Vietnam War, um, uh, many people who had supported him uh, abandoned him. But he said, how can we say that that's a useful you know, exercise of American power and hegemony to be bombing uh, people uh, in this small country? So um, we have battles today we have to fight, and, and uh, hopefully young people uh, will continue that fight as well. Ma'am? Dawn Conley, I like how you blended 
the justice with the legal aspect, with the moral slash ethical aspect. How do we really pull out that moral and ethical aspect to resonate to the point of movement Christians or those who follow Jesus? Or whomever of a quote-unquote good, good nature, so to speak. I think the Reverend King would say um, we all have a moral compass. And he, he would argue that as in the Christian church, um, we come together to worship. We don't worship alone. We come together to worship. And he would say, measure your moral compass in dialogue with others and, and, and see, you know, where do you come out? Do other people have ideas and thoughts that you haven't thought of? Do you have ideas and thoughts that they haven't thought of? And then where, once you sort of have a sense of what is the moral imperative we should be doing, or I should be doing it individually, but we should be doing collectively, then try to do it. I think his, his most urgent message would be once you have a sense of what is right as opposed to what is wrong, and you see that what is right is not being um, addressed, then you should start to address it, that each one of us has a role to sort of move forward. And if we all move forward, my goodness, what a powerful uh, and incredible force we can, we can be. But, but he would say, we can't be asleep, we, 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 and we have to engage. And that's, you know, and, and that's the thing, I was, Ms. Adams was asking about marching. Well, you know, one of the things about marching um, you know, um, I remember when, after the Trayvon Martin shooting, uh, my wife and I went down to a rally uh, downtown in, in Phoenix, and, and I actually wore a hoodie to show that I was, well, a, f a few years older than Trayvon Martin, so it, it really wasn't, wasn't uh, but in any event. But, we, we, but, you know, we had a lot of other things we, we could have done that evening. Um, and that's the thing. We are all busy. We all have many other things we can do. Um, and, and so, okay, what's your choice? And, and, and so first identify what the ethical response is and then do something about it. And al always with the realization you may not get a pat on the head. Someone may not come up to you and say, oh man, I'm so glad to see you here. You're such a great person. Oh, it's a wonderful... You may not get that. And a lot of the civil rights people didn't get that. I mean, the bus riders, the, the freedom riders who were beaten up when they got off the buses, um, uh, some we know of and we celebrate, but many we don't know. And, and they're anonymous. But the work they did, we stand on their shoulders and we benefit from the work they did. And that's our challenge. What's the work we're doing? Dr. Link, one question here, and then we have a final question here in the back. And um, our speaker will be joining us in the gallery, so if you have more questions, I'm sure he will entertain a period of inquiry. I always do what Reverend Herring tells me to do. <laughs> so first, just a statement of my own experience and maybe some... Um, insight from you of whether I'm reading Dr. King's works um, with any validity. I feel like what I hear from him is a sense that 
white moderates uh, rather than extreme racists are the barrier to equality. And the second thing I, I, I'd like you to address as, as a Christian man and a scholar and a resident of the valley or what we may term in our Christian language of this part of the kingdom of God that we find ourselves in. Um, with regard to his four steps of nonviolent protest, uh, fact-finding, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action, where do we need to begin as the Christian church in this part of the kingdom of God? All right. Let me answer the first part of your question about moderates versus um, out-and-out racists. I I think um, his point was most people are moderates. Most of us, I I would imagine, are in the the middle. It is a small um, subgroup who are so intensely committed either to the left or to the right, that that consumes their life. And it, and it becomes, most of us, that's not the case. And so his criticism of moderates is that there comes a time when you have to make a choice. There comes a time when you have to act. And my hope, my expectation, my um, prayer is that you do the right thing, you act applying your moral compass and act on the side of of what's good. Um, the results of our, of our uh, well, we, we, we see this played out in American uh, public life in our elections, where you have people, you know, deeply committed to one candidate or one cause, and, but most voters are in the middle. And the question is, are they persuaded during the course of a campaign toward one side or, or the other? And, and that will decide um, the campaign. On your, on your second point about, and, and, and so because the people in the middle are the largest block, that's why King would say, if they decide wrong, then we're not going to advance. And, and that's, why he wants, that's why he was so disappointed that the clergy were criticizing the demonstrations without criticizing the cause of the demonstrations, without saying it's deplorable that these issues have not been addressed, that we're still segregated. That, he felt, was an abdication of their moral responsibility. The second part of your question, where are we in, in, in the valley? Um, Reverend Herring, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I would argue, I, you know, I think the, the election to the U.S. Senate of Kristen Cinema is, is, a, is quite a, by the state generally, and the fact that two of our uh, four uh, statewide elected officials are, uh, you know, relatively left of center, I, I, think, I, I think we live in a community that is still changing, that is still evolving. And I think um, those results suggest it's evolving in a way that is um, consistent with the values um, we as Christians should, should, should espouse. Um, one of the big, if, one of the things I am at, at the law school in addition, I'm also, to my other things, I'm the faculty advisor to the Christian Legal Society. And that organization is made up primarily of very conservative Christians. And one of the things we see in, 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 in 
Christian faith today is how what it means to be Christian has changed, in, or at least in the public perception, from what it meant in the 60s and 70s. In the 60s and 70s and the 50s, when you see those demonstrations and the marches, almost at the head of every line was an array of, of um, religious leaders, um, uh, Christian uh, ministers, Catholic priests and Episcopal priests, uh, Jewish rabbis, um, um, uh, Greek Orthodox church primates, um, uh, and the church was in the vanguard across denominations, was in the vanguard of social change. As I mentioned in my talk, one of the people who was killed in Selma, Alabama, was a Unitarian, a white Unitarian minister from Massachusetts who'd come down because he felt so urgently the need to be, to be present. Um, and today, the church on a number of, of the issues confronting us today, um, LGBT issues, for example, is, or not the church, but the faith, Christian faith is divided. And, and that's um, an unfortunate reality that, that we have to, to deal with. So you ask, where are we on, on the four steps? I don't know. I, I would have to say, though, I think we're closer to the beginning than we are to the end. Pat Bell, uh, Union of Black Episcopalians, Arizona president, and I'm kind of on your coattail with that. With a lot of what we used to do, our um, priests and folks in charge were at the forefront of it. I thank you very much for having your presentation in the church. That's where it started. That's where we belong. I'd like to see more of that. I think if we did that, we might have more of a gathering. We might have more people coming together. Um, when that separation, we separated church and state, I think that was a big mistake. Um, I can appreciate how it happened. I remember, I'm old enough to remember prayer in school. I understand why it happened. I'm not saying... Well, I'll just go ahead and say it. Um, I miss it. I understand why it happened. I think it was a problem. Um, I have to go to All Saints if I want to see it again. Um, Things like that. But then look at where we are. Um, Look at our president. I think he started a lot of this kafunkel. Um, I think it's his rhetoric. That's created a lot of the problems that we have. I'm sorry for the folks that brought them here, but if you're not going to stand up to what the problems are today, you're part of the problem. We have another problem. We have governor in Virginia that has created a problem. We have Democrats, and he's a Democrat, that stood up and said, you have a problem. So when we have a problem, you have to stand up and say, we have a problem. And I believe you just said if you don't address the problem, when we have a problem, you're part of the problem. I'm paraphrasing. We have a problem. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you.
Just one final thing. Thank you so much to Dr. Link for being with us today and your wonderful presentation. Please join us now in the only gallery for a wonderful reception that's put on by the Arizona chapter of the Union of Black Episcopalians. And uh, do stay and ask uh, Dr. Link further questions. Um, But we are truly, truly privileged to have you with us today. And thank you very, very much.